talking about is what's called in the Buddhist tradition uh, the divine states of heart or the ab- abode of the gods, the divine abodes. Um, and it partly seems fitting in this particular season to speak about loving kindness, compassion, equanimity, joy. It's important also um, because Buddhist teachings at times can emphasize the suffering and the difficulty in life and facing that honestly or honorably, to remember that in the qualities of enlightenment that were listed and extolled by the Buddha, that joy is one of the necessary qualities of enlightenment. So that's the theme for this evening's words. Imagine joy is necessary for your enlightenment, happiness. We could just stop with that and let reflect a little bit. It's so easy, you know, to get involved in our lives, even doing really worthwhile things. Friends of mine have started a retreat center, these friends who are um, environmental uh, activists and lawyers. And they've started a retreat center way up in the mountains in New Mexico in the middle of this half million acres of, of wilderness um, for burned out environmental activists. <clears throat> People like the vice presidents of the Sierra Club or the Natural Resources Defense Council who've been you know, in their offices for years trying to save the environment. And they bring them out to this place, this spectacular place in the wilderness and don't have them do anything for a couple of weeks. No fax, no phone, no business. And just to see the birch trees and, and the elk that move in the forests and watch the sunsets and find the joy that's there for any of us in connecting with this life on earth beyond all our, our activities. It seems especially important in its own way at this time of winter solstice, which we're approaching. Because in the darkness, um, there is a different kind of luminosity that can be found if we trust. There are seeds in the darkness of some beauty uh, that wants to be born. In fact, in in the old kind of farmer's almanac ways of planting seeds, as I'm told, You planted your seeds just before the dark of the new moon, um, which was the most fertile time, uh, kind of coming up to the new moon, which was the darkest, just before that. And then the seeds would be placed in the earth and ready when the new moon, like in the winter solstice, ready to begin their journey back to the light. Poem from Wendell Berry. To go in the dark with a light is to know the light. To know the dark, go dark. Go without sight and find that the dark too blooms and sings and is traveled by dark feet and dark wings of joy. There's a kind of trust that's asked this time of year. And all around the kind of ancient world in the time of winter solstice, there were prayers made and candles lit and so forth. 
hoping the sun would come back. And it always has. And as sure as your breath comes, so does spring follow winter. It always does. So the quality in the divine abodes of this joy that I speak of is in Sanskrit is called mudita. And mudita has two different dimensions to it. One is the joy of our own being, the capacity to find joy and delight and happiness and rapture and pleasure in life itself, the spontaneous joy of our being, a kind of spiritual joy in being alive, mystery, wonder. And the second dimension is the sympathetic joy, the pleasure in seeing someone else's happiness, the joy in the happiness of others. And spiritual life is intended not to be a grim duty, which you just do like taking your vitamins and jogging and, you know, kind of all the things that you're trying to work out in the gym or whatever it happens to be. Um, the point of spiritual life, in the end, is to awaken that capacity for joy and openness that is who we really are. After the Buddha's enlightenment, it's said, after sitting under this tree and having the great revelation of joy and peace of heart and freedom of spirit, it's said sometime shortly after he got up from the seat and he walked a short distance away from this great spreading tree, the Bodhi tree. And he stood there for seven days and just gazed on the tree with appreciation and happiness, just love at the tree and the spot where he had sat and been sheltered for his awakening. My favorite story of Mudita, of the sympathetic joy which is shared with another, I've read often here. A farmer whose corn always took first prize at the state fair had the habit of sharing his best corn seed with all the other farmers in the neighborhood. When asked why, he said, it's really a matter of self-interest. The wind picks up the pollen and carries it from field to field. So if my neighbors grow inferior corn, the cross-pollination brings down the quality of my own corn. And that is why I'm concerned that they plant only the very best. That's simple. The joy in the happiness of others. If you look at poets like Rumi or Kabir or Hafiz, these great Sufi poets and Hindu poets, there's such an expression of joy and generosity of heart, ecstatic groundedness. There's an enormous generosity and humor at work, said one, Fresh, wild moments within a profound peace, drunken lyrics dissolving within a starry clarity, spontaneous pleasure mixed with discipline as well. And when I look at the poems of Rumi, he called his poetry an ocean of poems, or I hear incredible music, I realize that in some way they are not made up by those people, but they're heard by them. And Rumi, I think, was just writing it down as fast as he could. He was hearing it. Or Puccini, 
who said, I've done nothing. I simply wrote down what I heard from God. Or Mozart, who was taking notes, basically. God, that's a great symphony. Wait a second. Let me write that one down. So joy or happiness isn't the kind of happiness that you get something. Okay, now I'm happy because I've got this particular kind of pleasure. But it's the pleasure, the deeper pleasure, of being alive itself, of connectedness. A story. King Solomon wanted to build the greatest temple ever for the people to pray. He wanted to build it on the holiest of all places in Israel, but what spot would that be? One night, it said, Solomon took a walk, a long walk out in the fields, and saw a man carrying heavy sacks of wheat one after another from one barn to another nearby. Then the man slipped away into the dark night. He must be a thief, Solomon thought, but decided to keep watching. Soon a different man appeared. He did the same thing, only he carried the sacks of wheat back to the original barn. Then he too left in silence. Next day Solomon commanded the first man to see him. Why do you steal wheat from your neighbor in the middle of the night, he asked. The man replied, No, I do not steal. My neighbor is my brother. He has a wife and many children to feed, while I do not. He needs much more than I do, but he won't take any extra wheat from me. So every night I secretly carry wheat from my barn to his. Then Solomon asked the other man to come, asked him why he took wheat from one barn and put it in another. And he answered, I have the help of my whole family, but my brother has none. He has to pay for help, and so he needs more wheat than I do. He won't take it from me, so in the middle of the night I secretly give wheat to him. Solomon brought the two brothers together and told them what each had done. And they looked at each other and laughed and said, No wonder my pile of wheat sacks always stays the same. And they embraced each other with great love. And Solomon then spoke and said, Now I have found the holiest of all places in Israel. It is this land where brothers love each other in this way. And so the temple shall be built here. When we awake, when our eyes open, our ears open, the Sufi phrases, when the eyes and ears are open, then the leaves of the trees are like pages in the holy books. Or as Walt Whitman said, I believe that a leaf of grass is no less than the journey work of the stars, and the running blackberry would adorn the parlors of heaven, and the mouse is miracle enough to stagger sextillions of infidels. Just the existence of a mouse. I mean, where do mice come from? Well, obviously, I, mean, they, I don't know where they come from either, but they get everywhere. <laughs> they know how to travel. Anyway, Merton puts it in a couple of other simple ways. He said, life is this simple. We are living in a world that is absolutely transparent, and the divine is shining through it all the time. This is not just a fable or a nice story. It is true. Or, as he puts it in another passage, the saints are what they are, not because of their sanctity and holiness, but because the gift of sainthood makes it possible for them to admire everyone else. 
It's the best description of sainthood I've ever seen. But it's not really about who we are, but it's about that clarity, that transparency of our vision, of our eyes and our ears and our knowing, to see the beauty around us. What has made you happy recently? What moments, what touch, what vision, what music, what person? What experience? Because it's here to be seen all the time. When we pay attention. And so ordinary. I remember when I was seven or eight years old, I was very sick. I had what they thought was polio, and I was paralyzed, and I was put in the hospital. I was in the hospital for a good part of the summer. And I remember getting better, slowly, and go, getting taken home, and then finally being able to go out to play for the first time after a couple of months indoors in the summer. It was this, and I went out on this green lawn and out in the neighborhood into the park nearby, and I was in ecstasy. I hugged the trees. I did somersaults on the grass. I laughed. I was so happy just to be out and walk on the earth. I read this account recently in a, in a wonderful book on time about someone who had visited Bali and gone out on a dark night, really dark night, new moon night, from his little cottage to those little dikes that walk that you can walk between the rice paddies. And it was a night where the sky was just filled, the southern sky with the southern cross and all these brilliant stars. But because it was in the rainy season, it was a break in the rainy season, all the fields were filled with water. So not only was the sky filled with stars, but when he looked down, the stars were all reflected on the ground as well. And then he said, I started to walk in this sea of stars above and below, And in Bali, they have fireflies. And then the fireflies came out, and he said, I felt like I was swimming in a sea of stars. Sensory awareness, taught as part of Psychology 101 in a lot of basic psychology courses. The exam that was given at the end of the section on sensory awareness in Psych 101 at one university was this. The class came in, a big bowl of oranges was handed out, each person got an orange. They had ten minutes to write and describe everything that they could about the orange that was placed in their hand. It was the first half of the exam. How you describe, how it squished, you know, how it sounded when you squeezed it a little bit, what the texture felt like on your skin, what the color was like all around it, you know, the the odors and the different sides of the orange and so forth, the luminosity of it. Then the second half of the exam took place when the oranges were all collected. They were mixed up and put on the table, and then you had to go and find your orange. (laughs) And you were timed to see how long it would take you to find your orange. People found it like that. Like, my baby, oh, my orange! So what does it mean to be happy, to look for joy? And there's so much graciousness that's given us even in difficult lives.
Rumi again, do not sit long with sadness, my friend. When you go to a garden, do you look at thorns or flowers? Spend more time with roses and jasmine. We begin to sense as we step from the small sense of ourself, what we've called the body of fear, that identity that worries and clings to things and is frightened and struggles and so forth. You know the small sense of self. When we step out of that, in a moment can happen as we sit, as we walk, as we let ourselves open, as we do the practices of loving-kindness and compassion. And when we do, there comes a sense that the joy that we seek is not something to get or have, but it is who we really are. And with this awareness, with this awakening that grows, comes a kind of responsibility. André Gide put it this way. He said, know that joy is rarer, more difficult, more beautiful than sadness. Once you make this all-important discovery, you must embrace joy as a moral obligation. There you are. There's your moral precept for the evening. How do you like that? To sense this is to take responsibility for the heart, for what we bring to earth, to create in some way a sense of sanctuary of our life, to bring beautiful seeds and plant them moment to moment in the eternal present. One day, Zorba was walking along, and saw an old man, 90 years old, planting an almond tree, which takes 20 years to bear fruit. And he said, old man, why are you doing that? And the old man said, I carry on, I live as if I should never die. And Zorba looked back at him and said, and I, I live as if I should die any moment. Which of these is right? Little quiz. In the Buddhist teachings, It's said that the capacity for joy grows out of the purity of heart. As we shift from ambition and fear and attachment and worry, not because they're bad or sinful, but because they're suffering. As we let them go and rest more in the reality of the present, joy comes all unbidden. It is time to stop seeking approval, someone said. The universe obviously approves of you, otherwise you wouldn't have been here so long. There's a lovely incident in the story of the Buddha where he struggled for six years as a yogi doing ascetic practices and starving himself and sitting on beds of nails and doing all the things to try to force his body and mind to a kind of purity and finally exhausted and nearly dead. He almost killed himself. And people wandered by and they said, has the sage Gautama died yet? And someone else said, well, I think he's still breathing. Um, but it was that close. He lay there and he had a memory that came to him of being seven or eight years old, a young boy, in his father's garden in the spring plowing season, seated under a rose apple tree, And he remembered how in that morning he looked out on the world, the spring morning, and his body was filled with wholeness and contentment and joy 
and ease and the the sense of well-being of not struggling with a single thing in this world and all of a, all of a sudden he realized I've done it the wrong way I've been fighting against life I've been fighting against my body and mind and what I need to do is to stop to open to be present to listen just in that way so from the verses of the Dhammapada this capacity for joy like a lovely flower bright but scentless are the fine but empty words of one who does not mean what they say like a lovely flower bright and fragrant are the fine truthful words of those who mean what they say the beauty of virtue and integrity and the purity of heart rises like perfume even to the gods. It's not very complicated. When we're still, when we come to some moment of contentment, when we're at peace in ourselves and release our fears, our thoughts, our plans that keep us from being here, we can see the beauty. The beauty that's right here in front of us. And it comes in so many forms. The rock gardens in the Zen temple are forms of beauty. Those raked piles of... Who would have thought to make a garden out of gravel? But they're exquisite. William Stafford, the poet, I embrace each emerging experience. I participate in each moment's discovery. I am a butterfly. I am not a butterfly collector. Can you hear the difference? I am a butterfly. I am not a butterfly collector. The beauty that's here around us A very interesting study was done, study, I don't like to use the word, experiment, in London. Two streets in an area that was run down and poor and high crime, parallel several blocks apart. One of the streets, unbeknownst to the residents, the city of London assigned for a year street cleaners, tree pruners, people who took the graffiti off the buildings. And for the course of that year, that neighborhood in that st- where that street was, was beautified and kept clean without anybody talking about it. The street was swept off and the, the, the painted things were all taken off, the graffiti, the plants were watered properly, and the place was made to look beautiful. At the end of a year, the statistics were compared. And the crime rate in the street that had been made beautiful dropped to nearly half of that in the street several blocks away that was untouched. There is a place for our remembering and creating and bringing what's beautiful in us back into the world. So then it becomes a spiritual question. How to bring beauty alive? How to bring joy into our life. We sit to be happy. 
That's its purpose. If we can't be happy, what good is it? And you know, and when you do loving-kindness meditation, may all beings be happy, may you be happy. It's not a wish exactly. It's more like an instruction. Be happy. It's a verb, be. And the result. There is, in fact, in every person, a longing for happiness. We sometimes don't know how to do it. Often we do the opposite. But there's a longing for beauty, for joy, for connectedness, and we remember those moments. My daughter, who has insisted ever since she was old enough to know that we could do it, that we pay for the cars behind us when we cross the Golden Gate Bridge going into the city, still to this day, now she's 16 and a half years old, and, you know, Dad, you got to pay for the car behind us. And she's so happy when she said, I hope it's some businessman having a hard day, you know, kind of. And then, and the car gets up there and some, you know, they try to pay. She likes it, especially when people argue with the toll taker. No, no, you've got to, they couldn't have paid for me. You have to take my money. She said, wow, this guy's going apoplectic. Look at that. And then they start to smile and she waves, you know. And it's such a little gesture. It's such a little thing. How to bring joy into our life, moments, step by step. A person's life, said Albert Camus, is a slow trek to rediscover through the detours of art those one or two moments in whose presence their heart first opened. That a his vision of the life of an artist or of a human being is to recapture that original innocence, that original beauty. In the end, it's why people meditate. And we start to meditate to become peaceful, to let go, to purify, to bring compassion, to center ourselves. But as meditation deepens further, there come to many people Deep states of joy. There's, there's five grades of rapture that are listed in the Sanskrit text. There's the beginning of rapture where it's just a little bit of um, cool and trembling in the body. And then there's deep thrilling rapture. And there's rapture that brings um, cold and visions and, and uh, exquisite lights and ecstasy. And it kind of goes on from one grade to another. It's really kind of fun to read those texts because you get a little bit of, it's contagious actually. You just read it and your body remembers, oh yeah, happiness is possible. There are many disciplines that strengthen one's athleticism for love. This is from M.C. Richards. It takes all one's strength and yet it takes all one's weakness, too. Sometimes it is only by having all of one's so-called strength pulverized that one is weak enough, strong enough to yield. It takes that power of nature in one which is neither strength nor weakness, but closer, perhaps, to personalized energy. Do not speak about strength and weakness, manliness and womanliness, aggressiveness and submissiveness. Look at this flower. Look at this child. Look at that rock with lichen growing on it. 
Listen to this seagull scream as he drops through the air to gobble the bread I throw and clumsily writes himself in the wind. Bear ye one another's burdens, the Lord said, and he was talking one of, of one of the great laws of all time. So there's a kind of learning. She calls it the discipline, the athleticism of love. There's a kind of learning of our capacity to be present for life and for one another. Another story. Find it in here. Last week, a very good friend of mine had a close call. While Jim was giving himself the weekly injection of medication he'd been taking for two years, he suddenly felt very strange, nauseated, like he wanted to vomit. He broke into a sweat, even though he was cold, became disoriented, dizzy. He knew immediately something was very wrong. His cries of distress brought his wife running across the house to him. Laura found him agitated, restless, trying to calm his rapid, shallow breathing by lying down. When that didn't help, he went into the bathroom with no clear goal. Lying down on the bath mat, he thought he might be dying. So this is how it will be here on the bathroom floor. Should I call 911? Yeah, probably. <laughs> you know, that's how it happens. In about ten minutes, a hook and ladder fire truck, an emergency rescue vehicle, an ambulance, and a sheriff's car arrived. Seven large men came in and took charge. At that point, Jim began to relax. He'd been working very hard just to stay present, to stay alive. Laura, who'd been trying to hold a calming presence, let down and wept. Later, the emergency room doctor informed Jack he'd gone into anaphylactic shock brought on by an allergic reaction to one of the medicines. Yes, the doctor confirmed he could have died. Some hours later, still in the hospital, while additional tests were run to check out the health of his heart, Jim talked with Laura about how he was feeling. Of course, he was relieved and grateful to be alive. He was frightened when he contemplated how close he had come to dying. At the same time, he confided, he also felt embarrassed to have needed all that help. He knew it didn't make too much sense, yet he recognized a deep conviction in himself that he ought to have been able to take care of himself. To need the help of others was somehow a loss of face. As Laura listened, though, she was struck by a great irony. Jim's face was soft and open after his ordeal. He was unusually present, relaxed, and available. In an odd way, he looked more beautiful, even radiant. Jim may have lost face, but he also found that true face that hid nothing. I read this story as I did the passage from M.C. Richards because the quality of joy and happiness doesn't necessarily come from our effort or our strength or our will. Often it comes from that place of surrender, of letting go even of our weakness, of letting ourselves step back and see that we're not in charge. The way that's what meditation teaches so deeply, you sit down and you say to your mind, be quiet. Does it listen? You're not even in charge of your own mind, right? It doesn't do what you ask. You say to your feelings, quiet down now. 
Your feelings do what they want. All right, you say to your body, sit still, don't hurt. Does it do what you tell it? Meditation is really humbling because nothing do, does what you ask it to do. What it does is what it does. And what's possible for us is to begin to sit in a kind of sacred presence with the way things are and learn to love them anyway. A kind of beauty. I remember being in a men's retreat with Michael Mead and James Hillman, Luis Rodriguez, Meladoma Somme, one of these multicultural men's retreats that we teach every year a couple of times. And the story that Michael Mead, who's a <clears throat> storyteller, drummer, <clears throat> mythologist, told was an old Arthurian legend about a young man who heard of a castle with the most beautiful princess in the world, the most fair and benevolent and gracious princess, and how this young man went through all the arduous kind of initiations to, to find her. And then he looked up at all these young guys, guys from the inner cities, gang members and so forth, and he started to talk about the search for beauty and how men love beauty, not just the beauty of the princess, but the beauty of the words. And Louis stood up and told this incredibly beautiful poem, you know, and Maladoma stood up and showed this beautiful thing from his medicine bag that had been made that was fantastic, how men love beauty. And then ask them, was it true? And you had guys standing up, you know, with the hats pulled down and kind of their collars up and, and kind of from the inner city need to protect themselves, coming out and saying things about beauty and reading things and telling stories that you couldn't imagine. It was so moving to hear. And you began to realize everybody responds to beauty. Now, it doesn't mean that it's all beautiful. As we've said many, many other nights, last week talking about compassion, this human realm of the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows has unspeakable suffering and uh, in, incalculable beauty, and they're mixed together. And there's injustice and hunger and warfare and racism and tremendous loss and grief. And yet in the midst of this, there's renewal. There's the birth of incredible life every year on this earth. And there's the birth of beauty that comes out of you and you and you and each person with our words and our deeds, moment by moment. In a way, we need to create beauty in the muck of this human life plant the seeds of joy. Even when things are difficult, to remember that sometimes the difficulties, like that passage of vulnerability and near death, are the place where some deeper joy and beauty can be found. It's like Ramdas talking after his stroke and nearly dying and all this, and he's, he says, well, my guru taught me that suffering is grace because it brings you closer to God. 
He said, so all this must simply be heavy grace. And someone sent me this last week a book of pictures of sadhus, that's yogis in India, all these amazing kind of guys, you know, wandering about India in their loincloths and sitting in, you know, strange yoga postures and so forth. And there's this this one old yogi I was reading about. He said, I've spent the last 50 years wandering in India chanting songs of, of uh, and prayer, songs of praise to God. That's what I've done for 50 years. But now I'm old and I fell and I broke my hip and I can't go anywhere and I have to lie here and breathe. So while I lie and breathe, I chant my songs to God. Yes, I've always wanted to live my last years with the songs of beauty on my lips and God has now provided that for me very nicely because I've been required to stay in bed for the last seven years. I'm an eternal servant of the divine and I am happy behind my wildest expectations. This guy is beaming, sitting on his bed, unable to move, unable to go anywhere, just singing his songs to God and saying, I'm happy beyond my wildest expectations. I don't know, this doesn't seem that's very capitalist to me. <laughs> Something he's not consuming. There is a beauty that needs to be found somehow, even in the struggles, even in the jealousy and in the depression that we have. Maybe it's the beauty of the patience or the endurance we find or the person who comes to give us a little bit of their support and our willingness to let it in, you know, that gives a a patina to the soul, as someone said, kind of shines that which is deeper even than the sorrows. Because through it, through the pain and sorrows and the contradictions and ambitions, we somehow learn that that's not the way. They become a reminder for us that there's something even more important to this heart. And if we don't understand, spiritual life can kind of repeat our struggles. There we are struggling, and then we do it again in spiritual life, trying to make ourselves somehow different. But that's not really the point. The point as we sit, as we do practices of loving-kindness or compassion or sympathetic joy, or just feel our breath and make space in the heart for the dance of life, is to bow to it all as if to bow to the Beloved. Rabbi Levi of Berditch once encountered a man eating on the fast day of Tishu Ba'av. Surely you've forgotten that this is a holy fast day, he said. No, answered the man. I know this is the fast day. Aha! You are not well, and your doctors instructed you not to fast, said the rabbi. Nope, I am perfectly healthy, the man replied. Rabbi Levi lifted his eyes toward heaven. Look how precious your children are, dear Lord. I have provided this man with ample excuse to explain away his behavior, but he refuses to deviate from the truth even when it incriminates him. 
The idea in spiritual life is not to judge ourselves. We've done enough of that on this earth. But to find, moment by moment, that capacity to step out of the judging mind and just see and love and open. To release the past and the future, expectations and ambitions, and the suffering that we have all suffered. And live in the reality of the present. Because we only have this moment once. We only have this day once. Now, meditation helps. Prayer helps. Walking in nature helps. Beautiful music helps. You know, sometimes you need to turn off CNN and turn on Mozart, whatever the you know, music is that touches your soul. Sometimes we catch it from others. Joy is contagious. Another story. Some years ago, on a sunny Sunday afternoon in Seattle, a young priest stopped to talk to a parishioner and her five-year-old daughter, Carmen. The little girl had a new jump rope, and the priest began to demonstrate the intricacies of jumping rope to her. Those walking by all smiled. After a while, Carmen began to jump first once, then twice. Mother and priest clapped loudly for her skill. Eventually, the little girl was able to jump quite well on her own and wandered off with her newfound skill. Priest and mother chatted a few moments until Carmen, with sad eyes, returned dragging her rope. Mommy, she lamented, I can do it, but I need lots of clapping. I think that's really what Sangha is about, that we come together and we see one another, and we see in the deep way, we support one another. So the invitation of the Buddha is to celebrate and rejoice in the holy life, the good life, the life of the heart that brings well-being and cares for the welfare of the many, not by greed or hatred or delusion or accumulation, but by remembering this capacity for love and openness and liberation that is our true nature. It is like a lamp set up in the darkness or pointing out a road to one who is lost. Walt Whitman puts it this way. He says, Why should I wish to see God better than this day? I see something of the divine in each hour of the 24 and each moment then in the faces of the men and women and in my own face in the glass. I find letters from the divine dropped in the street and everyone is signed by God's name and I leave them where they are for I know that others will punctually come forever and ever. And to glance with an eye or show a bean in its pod confounds the learning of all time, and whoever walks a furlong without sympathy walks to his own funeral dressed in a shroud, and I or you, pocketless of a dime, may purchase the pick of the earth, and there is no trade or employment, but the young man or woman following it may become a hero, and no object so soft, but it makes a hub for the wheeled universe, and any man or woman 
shall stand cool and supercilious before a million universes. I find letters from the divine dropped in the street like leaves from the trees, and everyone is signed by God's name. The quality of mudita, of taking joy in the happiness of others, comes when the heart is open, when we take delight in life and realize that it's not limited, but there's an infinite supply of it. And the phrase, just as in loving-kindness practice, one might say, may you be happy, may you be well, may you be safe. The teachings of the intentions of the heart of sympathetic joy is, May your happiness increase. May you be filled with happiness. May you be filled with joy. May your joy increase. And you picture someone who's happy, who's having experiences of beauty, of love, and then wish for them, may that love increase. May that joy grow fuller. May your happiness grow further. There's a kind of innocence, child of the Spirit, you know, in China, the oldest teapots, it's said, which families have for generations and generations, are 100, 200, 300 years old, it's said that a teapot doesn't really get seasoned until it's been used for 100 years. And then, you don't have to put in tea. All you have to do is pour in water, and it makes tea of itself. That's the invitation of the Buddha in meditation, to sit and remember you are the teapot. (sighs) To breathe. To smile a little bit, as Thich Nhat Hanh says. To have the courage to be happy. Deborah Chamberlain Taylor, good friend and teacher here at Spirit Rock, she talked about how in one group that she led over the course of a number of years for some, a women's group, a training group, that one of the members of this group was a African-American woman who'd suffered incredibly, grown up in an alcoholic family with a great deal of abuse and um, tremendous pain, and then she herself got pregnant and the man she was with beat her and then left and she had to kind of raise her child and try to make enough money and did a lot of healing and then became politicized and became a, became a radical and a feminist and a political radical and struggled for justice for years and years, all kinds of struggles to raise her children, to educate herself, to help others and so forth. And she told the story of all the things that she'd done in her life, the struggles to find herself. And on the last day of these year or two of training groups, she came to the group and people were talking about what they had learned in their practices together. And when it was her turn to speak, she said, I've made the most radical decision of all. After all that I've been through, I've decided to be happy. What a decision for us as human beings to make. It's in there. You know, you read those little children's letters to God. Dear God, if you watch in church on Sunday, I'll show you my new red shoes. Right? It's there in us. 
And all it takes is our attention and our love. I was reading this week a book that was sent to me about Frida from Reichman, who is a very well-known psychiatrist. Um, and it's in part the history of um, psychotherapy with schizophrenics, which there almost isn't one of. People ask, what do you mean? It doesn't even work with psychotics and mental patients to do psychotherapy. At least it wasn't considered to be so. But she started a hospital um, which she ran for 30 years. And she talked a bit about how she worked with her patients. And I'll just describe this. For Frida, treatment of mental illness, which she learned after World War I working with victims of mustard gas and uh, shellings and so forth, the very slow healing that was required for these men. Treatment of mental illness was like the physical therapy after a stroke a painstaking exercise in hope. Improvement was unpredictable and was often followed by relapse or deterioration. Recovery, to the extent it was present, proceeded at an agonizingly slow pace. It was natural for the doctor to have periods of discouragement, even real despair, but they couldn't afford to give up no matter how many setbacks there were. A patient had to have at least one person who could imagine the possibility of their getting well. Frida thought the reason most psychiatrists failed at their work with uh, schizophrenics was because their, wasn't because their methods were ineffective, but because they gave up too soon. Their belief in their own potential to cure was so weak that as soon as they encountered a serious setback, they declared the person chronic and abandoned the treatment. Unlike surgeons who often do their best work when a patient is gravely ill, or oncologists who pride themselves on creatively adapting their methods to the uniqueness of each case, psychiatrists tend to try one thing for a while, and either it works or it doesn't, and they give up. But in her life, the philosophy that guided her was very simple. To redeem one person is to redeem the world, and I will give up on no one. Very wonderful story. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.